Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor here at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across cyberspace, but always close to my heart, is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Rich. I really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. Uh, winter has come a little bit early to Oklahoma. Uh, no snow, just frigid, frigid temperatures. Cold <laughs> like my heart. <laughs> we got about uh, an inch and a half, two inches, uh, which is known as a dusting uh, here in Seatown. Um, so yeah, we're, we're in full swing. Um, something else that's in full swing is the news, and that's what we're here to talk about. We actually had too many stories to do like a full discussion on each of them. So we're going to start out with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where we just uh, set up the news stories and I asked Tom uh, if they are indeed newsy or not. First up here at the Formnext Additive Manufacturing Conference, you know that one, HP announced the launch of a 3D printing as a service offering. Uh, they're calling uh, the 3DAS. Sure, acronym soup. There we go. The base service will come with automatic replenishment of supplies, billing, and usage tracking, and on-site support, and offers a pay-per-build model that will use HP JetFusion 5200, 4200, or 500 series 3D printing equipment. HP says this will allow customers to move from prototyping to production quickly with less upfront capital investment. 3DAS, Tom, news or not? I think this is news, and the reason why this is news is because this is exactly where I expected HP to take 3D printing. This is the same model they have for every other thing that they do. We'll give you a printer, or you know, you'll you'll rent it from us on a on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis, as long as we get to be the ones that maintain the printer. Because remember when everybody started doing the refill your own ink cartridges or recycle your toner cartridges thing, and um, HP started losing lots of margin because, as it turns out, there's a ridiculous amount of margin in all those supplies. <laughs> um, that's what we're going to see in 3D printing. Um, and that's really what I kind of expect we want to see because then, like, I have a 3D printer sitting right here next to me just off my, you know, camera left. Um, it's great, but, like, managing filament and managing all this other crap, pain in the neck. If I had somebody who could just say, okay, here's my print jobs for last month. This is my rolling average of print jobs. I'm just going to ship you guys filament and print heads and stuff when you think you need them. And I don't have to worry about that. If I'm not a tech nerd, that's what I want. And that's how HP is going to make money off of this printer revolution. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and yeah, for me, the big equation here is if this is going to actually benefit customers. Because clearly there's a benefit here to HP, right? They're obviously going to be charging more over the long term if you, if you have a 3D printing setup for any length of time than it would be just to outlay the capital investment. It's purely a matter of convenience and amortizing that cost and that kind of stuff. So I'm interested to see what the actual convenience will be. Because I do think there are some legitimate, like, hey, if you can just prototype faster and you don't have to worry about that upfront investment, you can just pay HP, HP like for making five copies of something. I do think there's a legit business value there as well. Mm -hmm. All right, next up, the Canadian enterprise information management company, OpenText, announced plans to acquire the cloud backup provider Carbonite in a deal worth $1.42 billion. The announcements coincided with Carbonite's Q3 earnings report, which, uh, if you didn't see, wasn't good. The company posted a $14 million net loss on the quarter, down from a net income of $600,000 the year before. OpenText has not stated how Carbonite's portfolio will be integrated into its existing offering, but that kind of consumer and small business cloud backup space consolidating, news or not here, Tom? Not news. This is going to happen uh, all over the place. 
uh, as the the big companies start getting dominated into the cloud market, the little fringe use cases and the consumer folks are going to start getting snapped up by folks that need to drive some cloud revenue. And it really helps when you missed your revenue target and somebody has, uh, you know, what, about a billion and a half in cash just laying around and needs something to do with it, <laughs> can't afford a new Maserati. Is, is this a situation where... Uh, you know, this this kind of cloud backup, whether it's for a small business consumer, that kind of stuff, that's just a feature for a larger cloud provider versus like an actual company business model. Like, or does it seem that way to you? I know there's still quite a number, um, you know, Backblaze, for example, is still kind of going strong in this market. Uh, but uh, do you see that going, like being the thing going forward? Yeah, this is a feature. This is a component of a managed service that I can offer you um, to get recurring revenue. And uh, as the great podcast from uh, Packet Pushers came out, I listened to it earlier this week. Um, basically, managed service revenue equals, we don't want you to call us, we just want you to send checks. And that's what they're <laughs> hoping, is they can get people signed up for this service and send them the checks and we'll back your data up. Just never call us if you actually have to get it back. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up here, Microsoft's HoloLens 2 went on sale in the U.S., Japan, China, Germany, a bunch of other countries. Previously announced at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. It's a $3,500 augmented reality visor. Offers a wild field of view than the original. Improved eye tracking, new gestures to re reduce false positives, uh, particularly when like bringing up their equivalent of the start menu, and weighs about 1.3 pounds, so significantly lighter as well. As part of the launch, Microsoft also introduced Azure Spatial Anchors. This is kind of interesting. It allows you to create uh, in the cloud a uh, persistent hologram that when you're using a specific app, other users will see in that same location. It doesn't have to be reset up each time with the app. Uh, HoloLens getting refined here, Tom. News or not? Nah? Um, instead of talking about VR, I'm going to talk about NR. Not really. <laughs> Nobody cares about VR. I mean, realistically speaking, um, guys my age and your age, Rich, who probably binged watch Johnny Mnemonic way too many times, <laughs> that's VR and that's cool. Nobody else cares. Um, augmented reality, I could probably see that because you don't have these bulky um, goggles on and you have your device in your hands at all times. Uh, there are some specialized use cases for VR, but not at $3,500 a headset. Who's going <laughs> to buy that? The company? Yeah, guess what? They're going to fight over it. It's going to smell like Bob from accounting. You don't want that. Uh, this this isn't going to happen. Uh, I, I know that people want to make VR a thing. Mm -hmm. It ain't going to be a thing. And I'm sorry, guys, but come and find me in five years. Also, uh, once we have dolphins hacking their own brains, uh, then we will have reached the future. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... I, again, you know, we've seen products like augmented reality products like Google Glass find a, a very specific home in the enterprise and in certain like manufacturing and, and that kind of stuff, use cases. So the idea of combining, you know, a, a, a headset that doesn't have like a postage stamp field of view, uh, actually has a usable field of view, is relatively light, uh, certainly not inexpensive. Uh, but then the, the addition of like persistent holograms, one, obviously that provides some uh, continuing revenue for Microsoft and Azure, uh, you know, just another way to expand that service as well. But I, I, again, that's an interesting combination to me. I, I don't think this is a world beater by any chance. This is them fleshing this out until they actually have a product, I think, that they can price reasonably and uh, and, and that it really has like a fully complete consumer-ready feature set. Yeah. 
All right, and finally here in news or not, at the 2019 AI Summit, Intel detailed its next-generation vision processing unit, or VPU, and that they call in the biz, uh, called Keen Bay. The chip is designed for inferencing ML on the edge and has a new on-die memory architecture with 64-bit memory bandwidth. Basically, this will offer a 10 times performance boost over the outgoing generation, so not insignificant there. Intel is claiming better GPU uh, offers better than GPU performance, uh, saying it's four times faster than NVIDIA's TX2 chip and up to six times more power efficient in certain circumstances. That's saying overall, just in certain use cases. Uh, Intel hopes to launch this in the first half of 2020. Intel spoiling NVIDIA's ML advantage. News or not here, Tom? News. And here's why. Um, it is 2019 still. And we have now issued, we've now officially entered Bizarro Land. Intel is making application-specific chips, mm -hmm. and ARM is trying to be adopted as a general-purpose processor. If you had told 2009 me that was a thing, I not only would have laughed at you, I would have also asked for the lottery numbers. Um, that's <laughs> not, like, why, why is Intel making application-specific CPUs now? Is it because we, in other areas that have been using application-specific CPUs forever, networking is a perfectly good example, we are now transitioning to using general-purpose CPUs in devices that can run software. Intel should be all over that market. Instead, what are they doing? They're chasing ML. Why? Well, I'm assuming that the people at Intel think that ML is going to be, you know, the next big hot thing. Well, guess what? Just like COBOL programmers and buggy whip manufacturers, you're still going to be making money off of selling boring old general purpose CPUs to companies that need to put them into other devices. And chasing that hot, sweet ML cash is probably going to ruin your company. All right. Well, we will see uh, on that. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think we're going to be seeing that uh, in the next couple of years, but I think that's an interesting warning uh, for the company, certainly. Um, first up here on our discussion, I wanted to get into a report from GitHub. They put an annual report they called the Octoverse Report, basically looking at um, overall trends of their user base, uh, programming languages, that kind of stuff I thought was interesting. According to this, uh, this year's Octoverse Report, the code repository now receives more than 80% of code contributions from outside the U.S., and New high. This isn't to say that this is the first time it's been a majority uh, international or I guess outside U.S. contributions. It's been majority uh, outside the U.S. contributions since 2014, but that 80% is definitely a new high. Contributions from Africa grew 40%, the largest growth in any continent, and that centers around a number of tech hubs in the continent, with more overall the most overall contributions, unsurprisingly, coming from Asia. Uh, JavaScript remained the most used programming language, no surprise there, but Python beat out Java for the number two spot for the first time. Microsoft's Visual, code, uh, Visual Studio Code, Azure Docs, and Google's User Interf Interface Toolkit Flutter were the most uh, were the top open source project by contributors uh, this year. I think Kubernetes was like number five or number six. It was right up there as well. Uh, anything surprising to you, Tom? I mean, it, no surprise that more uh, contributions are going to be coming from outside the U.S. But does that number eighty percent is that significant to you? Yeah, I think it is. I think what you're starting to see is the fact that as brain capability, as brain drain happens in the U.S., as companies stop bringing people in on H-1B visas and things like that and leave them in their home country and farm the work out to them, you're going to see that a lot of code contributions are going to start coming in from places that aren't here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because, quite honestly, it's cheaper for me to leave a tech in China or India or Africa and pay them there than it is to go through the process of doing immigration here. 
And that's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's not really a big deal because that's what software is design, designed to do. You can write software anywhere. I can write software in a Starbucks just as well as I can write it in my cubicle. But as people start contributing code to GitHub, which that's what GitHub is for, you're starting to see the statistics behind that. And now the real question for me is going to be if I can just pay people in Tokyo or Bangalore or wherever else to write the code, why do I bother? Why don't I just have them write it there and I just ship things over here and assemble them? Now, some of the other stuff is pretty, you know, I like it. Um, yeah, Java can die. Like, we need to drive a, 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 a coffee-shaped stake through its heart and bury it in the holiest ground there is so that it'll never rise again to bother us and and Python, yay. Um, but yeah, otherwise, th this is the inexorable march toward programmers becoming a fungible commodity using standard language and standard constructs to build software modules that we then assemble into other technologies. Yeah, uh, and it's really cool that GitHub is still doing this, you know, kind of post-Microsoft acquisition, still kind of keeping, I mean, obviously they're very much tied to open source software, that's where the majority of their users are, so good of them uh, to still uh, publish something like this, uh, and I always think it's fun to dive into that and see what the, the horse race looks like for programming languages, and uh, yay, Python. Uh, next up here, in a blog post, Microsoft's Chief Privacy Officer Julie Brill announced it would honor the California Consumer Privacy Act throughout the U.S., stating it was a strong supporter of the law. Easy for them to say. However, sources speaking to Reuters say that Microsoft will have an easier go under CCPA as it could be classified as a service provider rather than a third party. The difference here being that service providers have written agreements with businesses that it will not retain, use, or disclose personal information other than for a stated contractual purpose. So they have to have that in writing before they're allowed to collect any data. Under, uh, uh, under CCPA, transferring consumer data uh, from a business to a service provider does not require notification to the consumer, unlike you would have with a third party. Whereas if a business is transferring it to a third party, you would have to notify consumers. Will this be the common approach for a lot of tech platform companies, Tom? It will. I can promise you that if this works the way that it's supposed to, Amazon will be chugging right behind them to do the exact same thing to to for the CCPA thing. So this is a, this is a double-edged stroke of the sword from Microsoft. They get to be the lead in what is becoming a very hot topic in privacy and consumer protection, mm. while at the same time touting the fact that they're a service provider because hey, we do cloud too. Um, this is getting in front of Amazon, essentially. Because um, let's face it, nobody cares about Oracle. And Google's track record on <laughs> privacy isn't so much as a track record, but a rap sheet. So they get to kind of stake their flag right here in the middle of everything and say, you know what? We got to be first at something since Windows. And now everybody else gets to kind of trundle along behind them and say, well, I guess we're doing it too. Uh, now, this means also you better be really careful that you don't do something you're not supposed to because we know that Microsoft has not always been the biggest fan of government influence in what they're doing. <laughs> I think it's better now, but yeah, we definitely don't want another bust up the Microsoft and sell Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer off to the glue farm kind of things. Yeah, Microsoft seemed to have really mastered this art of getting just ahead of where the regulatory headwinds are going and coming out and making these grandiose statements that they're like, we're, you know, listen, we're for regulation of uh, facial recognition technology. We're for this, you know, the CCPA being applied across the United States. I mean, for one thing, 
you know, kind of the unspoken uh, uh, truth about this is that it's probably way easier for them to just assume the most restrictive data privacy laws across the United States, which California currently has, instead of trying to create this kind of weird patch, or, you know, uh, uh, patchwork uh, of regulations across the states and just easier just to go with, you know, move as, move as fast as the slowest state regulatory horse. I don't know where that metaphor was going, but you kind of get where I'm going. Um, the, Overall, though, I mean, that's kind of, like, on the one hand, this kind of feels like a loophole, you know, oh, they're, they're getting around it by classifying themselves as a service provider, or theoretically, according to the sources, talking to Reuters. On the other hand, it feels like that's kind of how CCPA is designed to work, right? It's not necessarily a loophole. It's that, okay, you're, you're you know, you're signing this contract. You're saying we're only going to collect this information for these specific customers for this specific purpose. Everything else we're not going to retain. You know, I don't necessarily have a problem with that especially for businesses where they're going to have the ability to peruse those contracts realistically and know what's being collected. For On the consumer end, it gets a little more iffy because who's reading terms of service and that kind of stuff, who actually knows. And I feel like losing, potentially losing those protections of notifying consumers when data is moved from a service provider to another business, it becomes a little more iffy, right? But overall, it doesn't feel, uh, the potential here is this to feel sleazy, perhaps. I don't, that doesn't come across that way to me. No, it doesn't feel sleazy, although CCPA is a little bit more business friendly than GDPR. Um, the, I think this is more along the lines of Microsoft reading the law very carefully and understanding what they can and can't do mm -hmm. and trumpeting what they're capable of doing. So let's hope that it works out well for all of us and that other people tend to follow behind that as opposed to getting really creative with their interpretation of the rules. <laughs> well, I will surely see some creative interpretations. That's for sure. Um, Tom, I don't know if your uh, internet has recovered, but some Disney Plus users yesterday had experienced login problems during its U.S. launch. This was kind of the big thing blowing up on Twitter. Uh, Disney posted on Twitter that demand exceeded our high expectations. I don't know how they didn't anticipate that, like, everyone would just try it out because there was a free trial. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that Disney owns a majority stake in Disney streaming services, which was formerly called BamTech, which was... It's a, it's a long history, but they were originally the, the streaming platform for um, Major League Baseball and a bunch of other like high-demand uh, live streaming services. And it's really one of the, considered one of the most reliable back-end streaming services. Um, back a while ago, BamTech uh, uh, kind of published a paper saying that they were running on AWS and running through you know, what the advantages of that are. So I'm assuming at least part of Disney Plus is also running on AWS as well. Um, uh, probably multiple cloud providers or at least multiple regions and that kind of stuff uh, as you would for any you know, big application running in the cloud. Um, do you think this is an issue of cloud scaling here, Tom? Or you know, are we looking at more of an issue of there's an extremely complex digital supply chain, for lack of a better term, to get from you know, the data center wherever that file of the Mandalorian lives to your Roku in your living room? And is this like more of a fault of CDNs or that kind of stuff? Does that feel like based on what we know right now? There is a dump truck worth of issues about this whole thing going on. So just to give you a quick rundown of all the things that I've noticed, um, one, the backend tech is very disjointed. I have it on pretty good authority that that stuff didn't work optimally when it was just streaming to a few thousand people who like to watch baseball. Hmm. Um, you've got uh, a rollout plan, which did not include being able to download the apps until the day the thing went live. So now, instead of being able to scale your back end and know how many app downloads you've got to size appropriately, you're just guessing. 
and signups were only available on the website. And like me, I signed up for it the day it went live or the day before it went live. Mm -hmm. And I was because I know get in now. It's like doing updates on a game console before Christmas morning because, you know, those servers are going to fry that when everybody unboxes their stuff. Um, The problem with cloud bursting is you have two options. You can guess what you think you're going to do and pay the bill if you go under that amount and just eat the cost, or you can respond to the demand knowing that even if you can instantaneously spend up extra resources, you're still reacting to requests. Mm-hmm. This was not this was not a CDN problem. Uh, somebody did a great packet capture, and they figured out that Disney's being pretty fair. They're hitting like seven or eight different CDNs with this stuff. Once you could get into the app, you could watch things. I watched, uh, you know, the uh, the Mjolnir scene from uh, Endgame. I watched the horrible new Greedo scene that was in Star Wars. Um, I, and it worked well. Like, I could scrub to the right part of the movie, and it was instantly delivering the stuff. Mm-hmm. It was the back end that was broken. Like, my son asked why he couldn't change his profile picture for the profile that I created for him. Well, as it turns out, that has nothing to do with content. That's all the back-end servers. Oh, okay. So I'm sure I'm sure what happened, and this is a problem that we see quite frequently in networking, they scaled the content delivery system perfectly right. But if the control structure is not capable of being accessed so you can't browse to said content to start streaming it, you're still effectively going to be broken. Now, that's cold comfort for me knowing exactly what was going on and as i said on twitter and it seemed to be a very popular tweet um you know pour one out for the people who are you know the cloud architects and the network engineers who have their hair on fire right now slowly muttering to themselves i knew this was going to happen um i know what's going on and i'm still frustrated if this had been my wife or my kids, or my mom, or somebody who doesn't know what's going on, they're going to click on it, think it's broken, you know, or get the uh, the Wreck-It Ralph, hey, we broke something screen, and just say this is crap and move on. They're not going to dig into what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I just, Disney, you, you are the biggest media company on the planet. You serve billions of people in your theme parks on a yearly basis. You know what you have, and you still didn't make it work. And again, coming from that huge legacy, like that that huge legacy, streaming legacy, it's not like they just you know hired a bunch of engineers and th- this is something they built from the ground up. This is something that they they bought specifically to serve this kind of content and and to kind of come out flat footed. Again, it's one day. Um, they're not going to see anywhere near that kind of usage numbers on a consistent basis um, after the first, after especially after the week's free trial is over, right? Um, but uh, yeah. it's still baffling to see. And it's interesting to point out that uh, Google Stadia already has published their, you know, kind of to your point here, Tom, they've already published their app ahead of the actual launch of the service. And I think to get a better handle of what those numbers are going to look like, especially for something like streaming games where theoretically the bandwidth usage is going to be way more intensive. Yeah, it's going to be way more intensive, but it's going to be like 2% of what Disney is. And if yeah. you don't believe me, ask yourself how many people you know are huge gamers versus how many people are Disney fans. <laughs> and I promise you, one is definitely going to outweigh the other. Yeah, uh, especially with all the media properties they own now. Uh, uh, coming up here next, a little bit of a security uh, story we had here. Uh, security researchers at Purdue University and the University of Iowa, so the Midwest staying strong there, found 11 flaws in 5G implementation that could allow for tracking real-time location, spoofing emergency alerts, or silently disconnecting a 5G-connected phone from a network. 
Using a tool called 5G Reasoner, researchers were able to create malicious 5G and 4G radio base stations and obtain old and new temporary device network identifiers, which could be used to track or push messages to a device. The exploit required a working knowledge of 5G specifications and a software-defined radio, so basically not a whole heck of a lot. Researchers did not release a proof of concept for the attacks. Uh, obviously, they didn't want people replicating it before a fix was out, but did contact the GSM Association with details. I thought one of the 5Gs stood for good security here, Tom. What's going on here? No. <laughs> no. Every, proto every protocol has flaws. That's If you believe that you have written a flawless protocol, come find me, and I will introduce you to people that will shatter your world. <laughs> um, the good news is, is that we're finding this now before it's widely deployed, because is when the iPhone gets 5G, that's what I consider wide deployment with the quotey fingers. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is what we do when protocols come out. We break them. I mean, you know, the, the uh, old joke tweet of, you know, a quality assurance engineer orders a bar, a beer at the bar, orders 10 beers at the bar, orders negative one beers at the bar. Um, <laughs> we're going to do everything we can to break them. And, and this is the kind of crap you want to figure out before all of a sudden we turn it on and people are like, wait, you mean people can track my location and I didn't know anything about it? Well, yeah. So this is this to me is the natural progression of new protocols. Break, 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 fix, 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 and then look at it later and go, okay, we think we fixed that thing and so it shouldn't be an issue. Um, now, with all of the things that they found, like being able to disconnect a phone from the network and being able to track people without their knowledge, I'm sure the NSA is super pissed right now. But, <laughs> hey, guys, sorry. We're on to you now. Bravo, Tom. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean... Is this also just the inevitability? Anytime you have like an open specification and software-defined radios, like people are just going to muck around with that and find ways to break that, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're basically just asking tinkers to come in and be like, do your worst. Like, okay, <laughs> let me show you what I can do. But that's what we want. We want people to find those flaws. We want people to find those exploits. Because I would rather have a public security researcher find them and say, this is not good, please fix it, as opposed to some nefarious bad actor finding it and exploiting it for years. And then we find out, you know, I don't know, like he dumped the president's cell phone and now has a record of every phone call he's made you don't want that nobody wants that well yeah or uh, or we see the story that nso group has been selling this for years uh and no one knew about it so um so yeah uh, so so good to know um something else that's good to know though is that mozilla intel red hat and fastly announced the creation of the bytecode alliance which aside from having a super cool name is an open source group that will work on creating new software foundations building on standards such as WebAssembly and WebAssembly Systems Interface. Uh, traditionally, WebAssembly has been pitched as kind of a way to run compiled code in a browser to get native performance advantages not running uh, JavaScript. But the Bytecode Alliance hopes to establish a capable, secure platform that uh, allows application developers and service providers to confidently run untrusted code on any infrastructure for any operating system or device. So, you know, the, the old uh, uh, write once, run anywhere promise that we've all heard a million times. Laudable goals, I'm sure, but does this mean much when you don't have Microsoft or Google on board? One of the primary founders, uh, you know, uh, or one of the primary uh, benefactors, I guess, to the original WebAssembly launch. Boy, you certainly hit that nail on the head with a giant sledgehammer. <laughs> Um, let's see here. Mozilla. Okay. You got a browser vendor, Firefox. Um, probably at this point, uh, I'd say a distant two. Sure. Um, 
maybe even a distant three if you want to count Safari. Um, Intel, okay, great. We got a, a chip manufacturer, Red Hat, Fastly. Okay, um, <laughs> it, it's kind of like it's kind of like Mozilla started ad calling people, and whoever responded first got their name on the press release. And and you know, Mozilla, I love you guys. Uh, but this is the thing. Google doesn't want this. Google wants everything to run natively in Chrome and screw the rest of you guys. Because if you can make it work in Chrome and nowhere else, guess what? People are going to download Chrome. Hello, Google Docs. Um, but this is also a huge problem for Apple because Safari is a sandbox and they don't want random code running in that sandbox without vetting it. And you're basically giving them the option to do that. They don't like it. Uh, Microsoft... It, does anybody use Edge anymore? I mean, it's based on Chromium now. That should tell you how big the uptake of it was. Um, I personally used it once to to download Chrome uh, on my Windows 10 PC. But uh, this, that's the thing. If and I'll just I'll grind the stake in the ground here. If you don't get Google on board with this, congratulations, you are shouting into a hurricane because nobody cares <laughs> if you don't support their browser. And 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 think about this. Think about all of the browsers that, that remember, I, I lived through the browser wars, the, you know, this page is best viewed in Netscape Navigator at 800 by 600. Realistically speaking, today, every other browser you use is still based on Chromium. All of those niche social media, web credential, awesome, whatever. I mean, Opera is based on, on Chromium in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's, no, if you don't get Google on board, you have nothing. Period. Yeah, it, it to me that was just such a, a glaring omission. Although it is like the the foundation of people that oh they make cool stuff. Let's all work together to make some more cool stuff. Like I, again, I love the idea of this. I, I love the idea of WebAssembly. I, you know, we we've seen some uh, some interesting work on that. Uh, you know, through the through the Tech Field Day uh, community, like some some very basic kind of first steps on that. Um, so I'm always super interested in that. I'm interested in kind of taking that to the next level of maybe getting beyond the browser. But you're right. It doesn't seem like the right stakeholders are in place to do this, even if they're technically able to do it to get the kind of mass adoption that you're going to need probably on an OS level at a certain point. Because, yeah, a lot of people do run a third-party browser, but most of those people are running a Google third-party browser. Yeah. I mean, basically, to me, what this is like, it's the, the Highway Manufacturers Association and the Tollbooth Manufacturers Association and the Bridge Builders Association are getting together to talk about the best way to build a car to drive on these things. <laughs> well, if you don't have a car manufacturer on your board, it ain't going to happen. Want to give some love? Mozilla, we appreciate the effort, I, I think, is the message here, but we skeptical about uh, what, what can come next. Although, like I said, most, uh, Microsoft and Google are kind of on board for the WebAssembly standard, so theoretically, maybe down the line, if they do some interesting work, maybe maybe Microsoft gets on board. Maybe, sure, why not? Um, they want yeah. Edge to be a thing, yeah. so there's some hope. Maybe. Sorry, I had to I, I had to suppress a giggle when you said they want Edge to be a thing. I, they're trying. They're listen. They're trying. Okay, I got to give them credit for that. Well, that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being on today. Really appreciate it. Uh, where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? 
Oh man, I'm all over the internet at this point. Uh, follow me on Twitter at networking nerd blog is networkingnerd.net. I've also been writing a lot of pieces for our website at gestaltit.com. Uh, lots of event coverage and briefings that I've been taking. So you definitely want to check that out. My, uh, my personal blog is a little bit more thought leadership and musing at this point. Yeah, and uh, w another thing people should check out, uh, always gestaltit.com, but uh, this week we have our 10th anniversary. We have the 20th Tech Field Day, but it's celebrating our 10th anniversary uh, with the event series. So check that out at techfieldday.com. That's live streaming today, uh, tomorrow, and Friday. Uh, so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, if you're watching this at a later date. Uh, so make sure you check those out. Lots of great content on there. We have a lot of original delegates and a lot of original presenting companies uh, kind of making a return uh, in, in grand style and lots of great technical conversations. It won't just all be reminiscing. So be sure to check that out. Really excited for that. And uh, if you are interested in, uh, you know, kind of getting um, a little bit of uh, data recovery um, webinar on, you can check out one that I uh, moderated. Uh, you just go to Commvault.com slash webinar. I did that uh, uh, with Commvault and with uh, Glenn Deckhazer, uh, who we've worked with with uh, the Tech Field Day community as well. So be sure to check that out too. I'm uh, really proud of the work we did there, and that's going to be going up. Uh, we're going to be doing that later this afternoon. So check that out. Very excited. Uh, Tom, thank you once again uh, for being on. Really appreciate it. No problem. All right. Uh, until the next time we meet, remember everybody, have a super sparkly day. <laughs>